2: You're a sportscaster for your entire life, and then suddenly you become a podcaster, which you never think you would be. And then you're becoming, a, as I call it, a bookcaster, an author, which you never thought you would be. These last three years have probably been the most rewarding three years of my career in that suddenly I had to reinvent myself. I'm Jim Hankey, and this is episode two
3: of my conversation with Chicago radio legend, George Offman, about his new book, and the conversations he's had with a host of other legends. Let's get looped in, Chicago. A sports media veteran of nearly 50 years, George Offman has worked for WGN, The Score, and right here at WBBM. He launched his own podcast a few years ago as part of Last Word on Sports Media called Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, where he's chatted with some of the biggest names in sports media. George has turned many of these conversations into a new book, named the same as his podcast, and it's available wherever you buy literature, featuring conversations with various bears, bulls, cubs, and White Sox legends, and much more. So I selected a few specific conversations on George's podcast to delve deeper into with him, and graciously, George has allowed us to share that audio here. The first part of our chat featured clips of Bob Costas, Dave Wonstadt, and Jason Benetti. But here in this second episode with George, you can enjoy stories from Blackhawks national anthem legend Wayne Messmer, celebrated Cubs broadcaster Pat Hughes, and Chicago sportscaster Peggy Kaczynski. Before we get into more specific people, I wanted to ask you, what do you think makes Chicago such a unique sports city?
2: <laughs> that team has loose so much. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but there's, you know, it's like when they win, it's fabulous. But it's a, it's a two-team baseball town. That makes it very unique because you only have New York, you have Los Angeles, and you have Oakland, San Francisco. And so that's the uniqueness. Plus there's history here. You know, the Bears were the, one of the inaugural teams of the NFL, along with the Green Bay Packers. The Blackhawks were one of the original six teams. I mean, the Bulls have been around for 50 plus years, and it's pretty obvious with Michael Jordan how successful they were. I think because I think it was it Bob Verde who said the this is a city of big shoulders and slim uh, championship trophy cases. Well, that changed a little bit. You know, the Bears won finally in 1986, and then you had the Bulls run, and then you had the Blackhawks run, and then you had the White Sox winning the World Series, and then you had the Cubs winning the World Series. That's great. But in essence, the teams have been pretty lousy. Uh, and there's that fandom. And plus, I think sports radio has really brought out that passion even more because people get angry seeing what's happening. For example, with the Bears right now, there's just that overt anger fire the coach, they have the owner sell the team, which is not going to happen. Same thing with the White Sox. Then they're the optimists with the Cubs who want to see things grow and grow. We talked earlier about Bob Costas, and I wanted to bring up Pat Hughes
3: because he, again, like, like Costas, like I mentioned, in speaking with you about when they won the NLCS, his memories are of the radio team, are of, you know, like, yes, we knew what was happening or what have you. But his focus was on how that night was covered and not so much necessarily that the Cubs won the pennant. Uh, it was more so I remember everything we got that night. And I just thought that was really unique, too
4: thinking back i I stayed in the booth uh we had a nice post game show len casper the the excellent cubs television play-by-play man was on the field working on our radio crew and so i was going back and forth with ron Coomer at my side and ronnie was emotional because he grew up as a cub fan since the time he was you know six or seven years old he's been loving the chicago cubs so it was a special moment for him He got to play for the Cubs and now he got to be a broadcaster when they won the pennant and then eventually the World Series. But Len Casper did some tremendous interviews on our postgame show. Uh, The first guy he got, I think, was Joe Madden, And Joe was emotional. You could tell uh, here Joe had been a lifer in baseball for 35 to 40 years. And finally, he got to manage a World Series championship team and it was the Chicago Cubs. So it was a special moment there. Later on, I remember vividly that Len got both Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo together, and and Len did something very clever. He got each man, Bryant and Rizzo, to talk about the other, and it was just great radio, and you could tell they were just young men, but they were so happy, Uh, and it was the ultimate to win the pennant at that point. And then the the next ultimate was winning the World Series, as we said, about 10 days later. But just that whole thing, that whole scene about being at Wrigley Field uh, with the fans, uh, beating the Dodgers, winning the National League Championship Series, going to the World Series, it still gives me a great thrill just to think about it and to talk about it.
2: He paints that picture of being the reporter. I love the fact that when he opens his broadcast, this is Pat Hughes reporting. I don't think I've ever heard any broadcaster say that, but that's exactly what they're doing. Sure, They are reporting on the air what is happening in a sporting event and painting a picture that may not just be about the game. It could be before the game, it could be during the game, and it could be after the game. And so Pat, uh, who has this fabulous voice and great delivery and a very dry sense of humor but a pretty darn good one too uh, was amazing in that in in discussing you know getting to the world series and I can tell you I was there that night so when they finally let us on the field which was 10 minutes later it was the loudest I had ever heard Wrigley Field now imagine I'm in a press box the whole time so you don't know what the sound is on the field; it was deafening. I turned around and I said, "Oh my gosh, it's loud!" I can imagine what it is when you're on the ice and the Blackhawks, you know, are are winning a game or there's a goal scored. So that was very profound to me, is to to hear that. But but Pat, you know, tells wonderful stories, and of course, a great story about Ron Santo because he loves to tell stories about Ron Santo.
3: Well, I wanted to bring that up because you mentioned Pat's dry sense of humor, so. For me, again, a tried and true Brewers fan, I loved listening to Cubs games when I moved to Illinois because of their back and forth. And while not scriptedly against each other, like, okay, I'm going to compare them to when I grew up with professional wrestling, I'm comparing them to Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Because, like, <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon is this consummate. He was a wrestler, but he was this consummate broadcaster. And Bobby yeah. Heenan would continually throw him off his game and, right. and be an adversary and that sort of thing. And Ron didn't have an adversarial bone in his body, but like there was very much a difference between Pat you know, calling, you know, the the, the the facts of the game, and then Ron saying, like, oh, there's I mean, I remember the once, oh, there's a dragonfly in here, and he's just swatting around in the in the in the booth. But Pat tells his story about ron's hair piece uh, Mm on the podcast which is just amazing and their relationship over the years just on paper you might not think these two guys went together with their styles on the mic but man did it make for some incredible radio
2: very funny radio because ron sano you know was bleeding cubs blue he was not just an, an analyst he knew the game but he was a former cub still a cub And he had a very odd sense of humor and he just let it out. And Pat was great with him. Pat was the perfect foil. I'm not sure anybody else could have been a better foil than Pat because he would just play right off of him.
4: Well, it could have happened to anybody, George. Uh, (laughs) Ron Sato and I are getting ready for a ball game. It's early April. It's 2003 uh, Cubs and Mets at old Shea stadium Uh, In the visiting radio booth, they had this old-fashioned electric heater, the kind that glowed a bright orange when you turned it on, and it was bright orange that night. Uh, We stand up for the national anthem, and Ron made the mistake of getting a little too close to this electric heater. And all of a sudden, I I smell something burning, and I hear something sizzling like bacon on a stove. I turn to look at Ron Santo his hairpiece had caught on fire. There is smoke billowing out the top of his head, a little blue flame shooting up toward the top of the booth. So I did what any good partner would have done. I grabbed a glass of water and splashed it right on the head of Ron Sato. And, um, you know, I mean, that's not the typical way that a big league broadcast should begin with one guy pouring water on the other guy's head. But, um, Roddy was uh, a handsome man and and very vain about his appearance, to be honest with you. And his first thought was, how does it look? How does it, (laughs) how does it look? I I almost laughed in his face because it looked like a golfer, Phil Mickelson, had taken a pitching wedge and whacked one right off the top of his head. There was a divot in the top of Ron Santo's head. But uh, we got a lot of mileage out of that story and, uh, years later, Ronnie always thought it was funny that the name of the Mets' starting pitcher that night was Al Leiter.
2: Of course, <laughs> of course. Ron Santo and Patthews fit like you were putting your fingers into a glove. It was perfect. When there was a bad play or the Brant Brown play, and Santo was just disconsolate, you couldn't console him at all. You know, I remember when I was in Arizona covering spring training, and Ron Sandel, for the first time was up for the Hall of Fame. And, you know, so there's everybody is there at his home. Okay. The announcement's gonna be made at one o'clock. I know the, I know what happened at 10 o'clock. I was told. And somebody said, why don't you tell him, you know, ahead of time? I said, Are you crazy? are you nuts? I'm going to tell him, let everybody know I'm not breaking this story. There isn't a chance in the world I'm touching this. And he was in despair. But you know what? Like Jason Benetti, he wears his heart all over. He wore his heart all over. That's Ron Sano. He's a wonderful personality. After the break, you'll hear clips from Tell Me a Story
3: I Don't Know with Peggy Kaczynski and Wayne Messmer. Stay tuned. Moving back into broadcasting, uh, let's talk about Peggy Kaczynski. You you came up through the ranks and you did not have, for the majority of your career, social media acting as both a megaphone and also like a mirror in a way. Um, sportscasters of this generation and especially, you know, the 2000s and onward, there's this extra pressure, I feel, to get things right and, and not to go viral in a negative way. So Peggy's story uh, really jumped out to me because we can all empathize with being good at our job But having a day and making a mistake and having it come out at likely the worst time in your life um, is just incredibly harsh how that whole thing played out.
0: The life-altering moment really came when I lost my sister. Um, A couple of years prior to that in 2015, uh, when she was battling her 11th year of breast cancer and my best friend, my biggest supporter, um, I took time out to uh, take care of her, and I have, you know, nine brothers and sisters. This was very, very difficult, and I would—I had the full support of my, uh, my, my, my family. I was going to say at work, uh, my bosses, um, my sports director Jeff Glick, and my news director, vice president of news Frank Whitaker at Channel Five. Uh, they totally understood. They allowed me to go to Bulls practice or Bears practice, whichever I was covering that day. I would cover practice really quickly. I would write my stories. I would voice over my stories, hand it over to my cameraman, Matt Byrne. And then I would drive to my sister's house in Highland Park and I would take care of her. And this went on for seven months before she died. And when she died, I realized, I had, like, what am I doing? Like, mm. It makes you reflect when you have any kind of life-changing moment. It really made me reflect. I had covered um, three Bulls championships in the Jordan era. I covered three Blackhawks Stanley Cups, which were amazing in our modern era. I covered the the Bears loss in the Super Bowl with Lovey Smith and Erlacher and those guys. Uh, I covered the White Sox uh, during their, their World Series. But I had really been thinking about it for about two years that what else am I waiting for? Uh, I've missed Christmases and Thanksgivings and uh, T-ball games and, and basketball and dance shows. I had one once during the, the Blackhawks Stanley Cup run in Tampa, I left after morning um, skate around, flew back to Chicago to catch my daughter's dance recital. And I think she was seven years old, Um, got a flat tire, uh, got someone to help me fix the flat tire, got to the dance recital, turned around and left as soon as she was finished, left flowers with my husband to give to her, ran out the back door, uh, made my way back to the airport and walked back into the arena in Tampa during the national anthem. I mean, these were the things I was doing to try to do everything, and it took a toll. I was emotionally spent. I was done. I was tired. You know, I made I made a, a critical critical error on the air uh, that was um, just made fun of everywhere. Um, uh, the, the famous question to Patrick Kane: Have you ever? Heard- mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, a game winner in overtime before, you know, and I was at the Stanley Cup, you know, when he did it, I guess in my head, I thought I was saying something else. And I guess I didn't really realize what I had said. And I could tell by the way he looked out of the corner of his eye to see who asked that question. And when he saw it was me, and I'm just kind of, "Eh," you know, being silly, stupid. um, He didn't call me out on it. Um, but I could see the smirks from some of the Blackhawk beat writers, I was, I was pissed. I, I was like, why are they all looking at me like that? Some of the national writers. And when I drove home that night, after work, after the game, everything 1115 at night, I heard a national radio show and they were having so much fun what an idiot this what a bimbo what a dingbat she must not know hockey um this is why you don't let anybody in the in the dressing room to ask questions oh, brother i was driving home and i just was so stunned i it was like it hit me what i had done and i thought oh my god now you know there's a lot of guys who would not give two craps at all about that they'd be like ah eh, i made a mistake you know eh, whatever But I think sometimes with women, we are so ultra concerned about being right, you know, in in the sports industry and not making a mistake and that um, I couldn't sleep that night. I got home and one of my son that I actually do my podcast with now, my son said to me, "Um, mom, you're all over Twitter. I said, oh no, oh no. And you know, my kids were like 12 and 13. And it was heartbreaking. Some of the comments that were being said about me and they, they were the ones who kept track of it. And they were the ones who they could tell you to this day, the names of the people who said negative things about me. And I could tell you the people who stood up for me and said, that's just not like Peggy. I don't know why she would say that, you know, but there's gotta be something else going on. That's just, that's not her, her body of work has to, you know, and I drove to St. Louis the next day. And I remember we stopped at the airport where the Blackhawks uh, leave from the private um, air, airport. Yeah. And, and um, the, the Blackhawks PR guy pulled me aside and goes, Hey, Hey, are you okay? And I, was fighting back tears, you know, and I was like, Oh, my God, don't break down crying in front of the Black Hawks PR guy. And I said, uh, I'm just not myself these days. I said, you know, my sister died three weeks ago. I've been I, I thought going back to work was going to be a good thing. And I said, I just screwed up. I, he goes, don't worry, we all have your back. We know your history. We know you know, your body of work and, you know, just don't let it, it, get to you. Well, I get in my car, I drive from O'Hare to St. Louis and it's all over talk radio and everybody is just, and I, I was, it was horrible. Um, I got to the hotel in St. Louis and I just cried and cried. And I think it was like all the tears of my sister, everything just kind of culminated. And I had a, a breakdown in the hotel and I called one reporter friend of mine and I, you know, he kind of just talked me off the ledge, you know, he was like, you got to let it go. You got to just let it go, let it go. And I just kind of tuned it out. And and that led to, you know, the final decision of me being done and deciding to step away. From
2: a professional standpoint, of course, I could sympathize with her. We've all asked that question, you know, that one where you just say, everybody's looking at you going, here's a shovel, dig yourself out. But in her case, it lasted much longer because she got just steamrolled on social media. She was going through a difficult time with her sister. And it comes through. Of, of all the interviews I've done, she's among the best because of her honesty. And that particular story was very difficult for her. And I think a lot of people understood it and sided with her.
3: I want to close out talking about Wayne Messmer, you know, a voice Chicago sports fans have
2: known for many years for singing the national anthem at Blackhawks games. There is a signature moment for all of us in this industry. And I have to believe that the 1991 NHL All-Star Game at Chicago Stadium was for you. Gulf War is taking place, and there is a large national TV audience that gets to live an unforgettable sequence of events. And you are very, very much at the center of this. NBC
6: was covering the game, the All-Star Game that year. And uh, they had opted out of the anthem on a game that was telecast from the stadium earlier that year. And the fans were like, well, come on, what's the deal here? So this was a day and a half after the Gulf War had begun. So the emotions were running high. So the patriotism was at an honest level of, uh, of in enhanced state And I knew before the game, they said, we're covering the Canadian and the U.S. anthem in its entirety. If we need to break away for a news break or update of any kind, it's not going to happen to replace the anthem. Okay, cool. So it's rare when what we are God gifted to do and requested by man meet at the same intersection. But that certainly was it. That was where, if you're ever gonna do this thing right, this is the time to do it. It was so emotional that it took really intense concentration, because uh, it's tough to sing with a giant emotional lump in your throat when you're about ready to burst into tears. And then finished and was just like a just like a wet dish rag, just sweated, you know, throughout both of them. And then uh, <clears throat> Kathleen was with me up in the organ loft, and we just kind of gave her a big hug. And we said, man, we, oof, we just did something. And then that night, uh, later in the, in the evening, every local and national newscast opened and closed
2: mm. that video. And I thought, wow,
6: this, is, this was quite a day.
2: That is probably, to this day, one of the most memorable renditions of the national anthem. I, I could argue in this country's history.
6: Well, it is, and it. Uh, I just happened to be the guy there, and and I, fortunately, had the ability and the and the gift to be able to do it right at a time when we needed to hear it right. It's interesting because that was broadcast to the troops uh, via Armed Forces uh, Radio. And years later, probably three years later, I'm uh, singing at, a, at an event at McCormick Place. So I'm backstage and it's a big convention and uh, uh, I'm, I'm standing there and, and backstage there, it's pitch black. And all of a sudden this hand comes down on my shoulder and I, whoa, you know, I turn around and then this giant meat hook of a hand extends itself and said, Wayne, thank you for singing the song the way it's supposed to be sung when we needed to hear it done right. Well, you're welcome, General Norman Schwarzkopf.
2: Oh, my goodness. And it was like, wow.
6: And I love telling that story to kids. It's saying, you never know who's watching, who's listening, but it means as much as it, it, it means to you. It can just have an enormous impact
2: on other people. You know, Wayne has been the voice of Chicago in a different way now since, my gosh, I want to say it was in the 80s, you know, when you know, I think when he began with the Blackhawks and then he was doing the Cubs. And of course, he helped found the Wolves and he's been doing that ever since. And I do want to say this, that uh, when I uh, one of my appearances is going to be at a Wolves game on December 3rd to promote the book. And Wayne will be sitting with me for, I think, maybe the pregame or after a first period. He is a great storyteller. And he has a ton of those stories to tell. He also is one of the funniest people you will ever talk to. I mean, he can throw a line in there that just, you know, is side-splitting. But he is, in fact, he is kind of a voice track for Chicago, we think of broadcasters, which he is, he does a radio show, but that national anthem, that's his, he knows how historic that day
3: was. I want to close out by asking you what you have learned, not only hosting this show, but putting out the book. Is there, is there one takeaway you have going back and listening to things you want to include in the book, hearing these discussions that you've had with everybody in the industry What's a takeaway? What's something you can kind of like put in your back pocket as something you might have learned through this process?
2: Uh, It was the joy of re-listening to the podcast and trying to put it into print words where you weren't just taking a whole piece and quoting it. It's writing around it. It's also doing a little bit of a biography and my relationship with these people. And then trying to figure out what stories will be the best for a reader. Uh, And that was the most important thing. There are human interest stories that are always worthwhile. There are humorous stories that are worthwhile. There are historic stories that are worthwhile. And so when I started to write it, then the joy returned to something very different, something I'd never done before. So it's like you're a sportscaster for your entire life and then suddenly you become a podcaster, which you never think you would be. And then you're becoming a, as I call it, a bookcaster, an author, which you never thought you would be. So I've always taken a very unique path in my career from freelancing to working certain radio stations to covering events that you never thought you would cover to a podcast, to a book. These last three years have probably been the most rewarding three years of my career in that suddenly I had to reinvent myself. I think I did. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted, produced, and edited by me,
3: Jim Hankey, with additional audio provided by George Offman. As a reminder, if you skipped the first part of this conversation, it's awaiting you in this same podcast feed. WBBM's news director is Craig Schwalb, And our managing producer of National News Podcasts is Myron Kaplan. Follow WBBM News Radio and WBBM Podcasts on social media, and we'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you again soon.
1: How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage.